Hello, internets, and welcome to the Angry Millennial Podcast. I'm Kenna Klosterman, your host. Oh, no, wait. I'm not your host for this one. I'm your guest. <laughs> Handing it over to Jose and Stevie. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the Angry Millennial Podcast with your host, Jose Rosado, and co-host, Stevie Chris, where we talk to creatives and entrepreneurs from all walks of life and passions about the creative lifestyle, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Be sure to check out our site, theangrymillennialshow.com, and sign up for our newsletter to be eligible for prizes and giveaways, as well as stay up to date with new shows and upcoming guests. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, who doesn't love really well-designed photography clothing? Check out clickgearclothing.com, a lifestyle for urban photographers. All angry millennial listeners can use coupon code angryphoto to receive 20% off any order. And the first three people who sign up for our newsletter after the show will get a free $25 gift card. Now, guys, be sure to also check them out on Instagram at clickgearclothingltd. What's going on, AM Nation, and welcome to the Angry Millennial Show, where we chat with creatives and entrepreneurs about the creative lifestyle, the good, the bad, the ugly. Today, we have author of H3 Leadership, Be Humble, Stay Hungry, Always Hustle, and the Catalyst Leader and Founder of Blink, Brad Lominick. Brad, thanks okay. for coming on today. How you doing, man? Good to, good. good to be on with you. Yeah, I, I've been a, a big fan of what you've been doing and digesting a lot of your interviews in other places. So it's been it's been kind of a a really neat thing to have you on. So thank thanks for taking the time out. Well, thank you, and uh, I love what you're doing. I love I, angry millennials. I mean, is that's that's like uh, you know such a great expression of so many young leaders. Although you know. I know what you're going for here. It's it's not it's not that we're all mad, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know. But I I love the idea just of that name. So the fact that you've created a movement and a tribe and uh, a listenership and a podcast is exciting and fun. Thank you, thank you. And it's yeah. great hearing that because a lot of times people they hear I tell them about the show and they go, "Oh, well, I'm not really a millennial. I'm not really angry. So I don't know if I could be on your show." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just you're laugh like, and I go, "Yeah, you you go. You just don't me. get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's just right. me. Like it's right. not." You know, and then some people hear it and they go, "Oh, so you like a, a young Lewis Black type? You just yell the whole time, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, again, hey. they don't. Again, they don't get yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And I go as much as I love Lewis Black. No, that's not. It's not what I do. <laughs> so, Brad, um, you know, you've been quite a traveling man in terms of your career. You've ridden horses on a ranch in Colorado. You worked at Life at Work magazine. You ran Catalyst for a number of years." And now you work as a strategic advisor with Blink. So, you know, saying all that, tell us, is it true that you've been on the cover of GQ? (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had been. Uh, Yeah, I wish I had been. So, you know, I, yeah, I've, I've, I'm kind of a mutt as it relates to my career and Mm -hmm. seasons of, of assignment that kind of make up my, my calling. Um, You know, but I think that's true for so many of us. Like we, yeah. We navigate, we navigate in the first half of career life around a lot of things that when we connect them together as they're happening, you think, what does this have to do with this? And what does this have to do with this? And right. then when you look back in hindsight, you, you look at it and go, oh, the, I see the, 
I see this, this, this river, the stream that starts to connect the, you know, the tributaries all into the same river that end up flowing into the ocean. And so, yeah, I mean, I was a history major in college, which is pretty much worthless. Anybody who's been a history major. I was going to say, the only thing I ever knew of people like that were maybe they'd work at a museum or, or be a professor. It's about it. Well, and yeah, I mean, for me, it was law school. Uh, I, I thought I wanted to go to law school and I ended up working on a ranch as a cowboy post-graduation for six years and wow. never went back to law school. Uh, you know, I was expecting to go out there for six months and I stayed for six years. And that was really a turning point of, of then being connected to some other opportunities out of playing cowboy, which I would have never thought would happen. Yeah. I don't but think I, most people put that together. Yeah. But I, you know what I knew Jose that like leadership for me was, was this, uh, this lane I wanted to run in, even from elementary and middle school and high school and college. Nice. There, was a, there was a theme there for me that I wanted to really be in the, in the business, in the, in the lane of influencing influencers, like yeah. gathering leaders and staying connected. And so that's really what the theme of my life has been. If I look back on the last 20 years, it's been connecting, inspiring, releasing, equipping leaders. And that's been in whether on the back of a horseback. I was going to say, I mean, in reality, it was a very nice preface to what you're going to do because you were essentially a cat wrangler. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you were yeah. herding, you cats. herding cats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the reality is, is, you know, you, you influence people when you put them on the back of a horse in the middle of the mountains of Colorado, right. they're looking at you going, uh Oh, like I'm in trouble. If I don't have a wrangler here who can help me figure out how to ride this horse. Well, I may fall off the cliff. Right, right, uh, right. But it's, yeah, it's been a natural theme and catalyst. Callus has been the big, big, biggest expression for me of career life. And that's right. really, I, I, in many ways, defined sort of who I am for this season. Nice. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned that I always look to, and we all do, look to like, you know, quotes of regularly famous people and that kind of stuff. And I think one of the most quoted people ever would be like Steve Jobs, you know? Yeah. But one of the things was there's this keynote he gave in the 80s um, where he says, you know, you can never connect the dots looking forwards. You only connect them looking backwards. And and I've noticed that too. I mean, I, I'm 32 years old, um, essentially, I guess, a, a decade into my career. Um, but I can sit there and say, like you said, I mean, I've had some very varied things that I've done. And it, it's as I get older and, and I get into, like, say, this podcast and stuff like that, you know, you start asking yourself, okay, is this what could be the culmination of everything else I've done? You know, could this be what, I don't want to say essentially I was made to do, but yeah, in a sense, you know, you, you sit there and say, okay, this didn't work out, but I learned something. This worked out and it went well. You know, this didn't work out and maybe I I learned a tough lesson. Um, and then you have this new idea and you take that risk, but you tell yourself, okay, you know, like this all was supposed to happen. Yeah. You well, know. and that's, and that's so true. Like the, 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 um, the disconnect for so many, especially millennials and, and young leaders, but all of us like, is that we, we put pressure on ourselves to figure out what we're supposed to do in life by the time we're 18. Which when we, when we, when we go to college, can, can we talk about that though? Because yeah, it's crazy. The, the, I mean, I, I'm, if you've uh, heard our talk with like Chase Jarvis, he's a big proponent of the same thing of, of really Education has to change. It's it a model to. that's hundreds of years old. The, every year, just because of inflation, you know, um, tuition goes up tenfold. But there's no real 
justification on the other end as to why. Yeah. And 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 then like you said, asking anyone at 18, 19, 20, even 20 years old to pick what they want to do for the rest of their lives is kind of asinine. You it know? is. And it is. And it's just setting yourself up for failure in a sense. Because I mean, you look at I mean, I have two degrees and and I struggled to find work and then I tried like convincing myself like I felt that I would never be ashamed of my education. Um, but at the same time, you sit there and say, okay, does a college degree mean what it meant not even 20 years ago, even 10 years ago? No. It's I, I really honestly feel like at this point, the only thing a degree means, with the exception of if you went Ivy League, because that's just like a network you get into. But beyond that, all a degree means is that you stuck with something you didn't want to do and you and you graduated and right. you, you stuck with it. And that's it. Because what you, you said it yourself, you're a history major. I know people who means went nothing to, to me. Yeah, now. yeah. People who went to like psychology and end up working in tech. You know, like it, there's yeah. a huge disconnect, and that's been the case for a while. So that's nothing new, but it's unfortunate that that's a a, a running joke that really has never gotten addressed. You yeah. know, and and I and I I just don't. I I honestly think I was talking to um family about it. I was in Puerto Rico uh, a few weeks ago, and I said I don't realistically think that. My, we, I have two kids. So I have a son who's going to be 11 in May and a daughter who just turned nine. And I sit here and think, oh man, I got to really start saving for college and really kind of doing that stuff. But then I sit there and think about it like in 10, no, another 10 years, I don't know if, if the, if the college model is really going to be existent. Yeah. And somebody and, needs to disrupt it. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I, people like Seth Godin and Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, those guys, have written a lot about this. And Vaynerchuk has even made the challenge to say, hey, instead of paying a, a college, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 a year, pay me five. Yeah. And I'll give you way better education than you could get there. And you'll be ready for the real world and you'll actually get experience and you'll be able to make money. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm with you. And, and you know, here's the, the reality of so many of us, regardless of education, regardless of college experience, is that we don't necessarily find the sweet spot of right. our calling many times until we're into our 30s, sometimes 40s. I mean, I think a lot of people who have midlife crises, is be, it's because they finally found the thing that they're passionate about and wired to do. Mm-hmm. And they're realizing they can't go after it because they have all this reality that right. says, I can't walk away from this mortgage and this family and this house payment and car, you know, like, and right. you're looking at life going, I, I now I know what I love to do, what I was made to do, and how do I make money at it? You know, so this is, this is the age old thing of, of, are we, do we have, and here's the beauty of the next generation. Like your generation is not willing to just stay in a role or a job or a company anymore because it's a means to an end. Right. This is why we have so many jumpers, right? I mean, like, yeah. This is why the free agent market is now vogue. It's the gig economy. It's mm-hmm. everybody's going. And it's not because it's the disloyalty. That's the thing that, that younger leaders are getting pegged, but it's not true. Oh, not at all. No, it's because I'm not going to stay here and be miserable. I mean, I will that, find yeah. what I'm good at and what I love to do. And not, and not even that more. So I tell people all the time, like, uh, I used to, I was going to name like all these things I want to do a book or a podcast, the accidental creative there's something with that name, but 
the only reason why I thought so was because I tell people very regularly, I was forced into entrepreneurship, you know, mm-hmm. simply because with, you know, with the education and everything else, I, you know, I graduated, don't get me wrong, in a horrible time during a recession. But I, I think post-recession, that, like, for instance, we're having, um, next week, we're chatting with Gary Swart, who was the CEO of Odesk. And he's someone who I can't wait to talk to because I've, I've met him at Creative Live, you know, a couple of years ago and, and heard him speak. But like you said, this gig economy, I don't even necessarily know if it's something that millennials can be, um, can say that they really kind of spearheaded more so than just like this post economy landscape is every corporation has a bunch of 1099 employees. And, and they're, cause they're looking at their bottom line. They're looking at saving, cutting costs. They're looking at, you know, not having to pay, um, you know, unemployment and all that kind of stuff. Because unfortunately they, they all are very in defense mode or on the offensive, I should say, because of what happened with the economy. Yeah. So it's kind of like, like you said, it's, yeah, the gig economy actually kind of grew out of companies just, just like, like I, my father's a baby boomer and we look at that generation and we say, yes, back then you could have gotten a job and stayed within that company for years. Now, I just don't even think it's even physically possible for anyone to do it, whether you wanted to or not. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, here's the, here's the thing that I tell leaders a lot, and I wrote about this in the book, it is because of where we exist today, and this has always been true, but because even more of today, we got to be sure that we're, we're correct on differentiating between identity and, and calling and assignment. Right. And identity, identity is who you are. You know, that's unchanging. Uh, calling is sort of that, the, the why on your life. So for me, the why on my life is to influence influencers. I, I just feel like I've been, I've, I've got a calling to gather leaders, to connect leaders, to inspire them, whether it's in an arena or it's, you know, 10 people at a lunch. Right. But then my assignment is what can change. And so like the catalyst season for me was 13 years. But that wasn't my calling. That was my assignment that should reflect my calling, which right. in essence gives, perp- gives a sense of connection to my identity. But a lot of us, it, it, like if we're not careful in this new gig economy, we'll just become project people who are schizophrenic mm-hmm. with, with no direction. And so we're just right. jumping from one thing to the other. So we got to make sure that that calling, sense of calling and, and why am I here, the purpose of my life gives them the, the freedom to chase after different assignments. And I'm going to have seven, six or seven assignments. You may have 10 or 15 assignments, but those should all reflect that sense of calling again. And then that gives a reflection to your identity that's unchanging. Right. Like an overarching theme that you, yeah. you kind of try to apply. Yeah, right. Because sure. if I would have left Catalyst without that being clear for me, all of a sudden I would have felt like, oh, my life is over now because I lost my calling. No, I just, that's a new chapter of the book for me now in a new season of assignment that should reflect my calling. But I can walk away from that and go, man, well done. Like that was, that chapter's through. I'm on to the next chapter in the book. Yeah, and, and I'm going to want to, I'm going to talk about that in a second because I'm sure no matter how uh, defined or how, um, you know, in sync you, you, seem to be with your calling that must have been an adjustment for you oh gosh yeah big time you know big time man um, like yeah, yeah i mean the, the 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 glitz and glamour and the and the sizzle and being the catalyst guy that was that was um you know a big movement 
a, a big chair, uh, a, a big fish, you're a big fish in a small pond. And, you know, that's hard to walk away from. It's, it's, I, I compare it and I'm not in any way comparing who I am to a pro athlete, but it's sort of like you're, you're walking away from that season of playing in the NFL. And now all of a sudden you, you start a new season of life. And, and for me, you know, so much of it was, again, going back to proper understanding of, of identity mm-hmm. and of calling and assignment. But so much more of it than that, Jose, was that, like, I don't want to be the guy that stays around too long. Right. And everybody's, everybody around me is going, man, Lamedek needs to step out of the way. <laughs> like, he's just in the way now. He's a barrier right. to growth. Right. He's a barrier to the next, the next generation stepping up. He's a barrier to young leaders taking this and making it better than he ever did. Right. And I think that's, that is a huge, man, if we're all honest and we all sit around the table and are, um, are willing to be transparent, leaders struggle with that big time. Oh, for sure. I mean, because you, you figure you could have taken it so many ways. You could have said, I built this from what it was to what it is. So yeah. this is my, this is my uh, uh, legacy, you know, and, and, and you don't want to give that up. And yeah, I mean, that's, to me, like you said it, that was such transparency on your end to say, listen, I'm not feeling it. And chances are you guys aren't feeling me. So let me just be the bigger man to say, okay, I'm going to step out of the way now. Right. And like you said, and, 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 and avoid that very awkward period that a lot of people suffer with. I mean, you, and you mentioned pro athletes, same thing. How many guys you see that, you know, are in their late thirties, even early forties, still going out there and just getting pummeled, getting the shit kicked out of them. And people go like, didn't have any, had enough, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and you've been washed up for a few years and you, and one end of it, you can respect it because you can go, you know what? If you've been to that, that level of eliteness that few get to, it is a pretty great feeling. Yeah. And, and if you say, okay, I'm just every day, like, you know, I'm a big baseball fan too, but they say every day in the sun on that field, I'm, I'm happy, you know, whether I'm playing like crap or whether I'm in my prime, I'm just happy and thankful that I have one more day that I could, I could be out there. And and I get, get that. Um, but like you said, it is, it is a very hard decision. I mean, you look at like, um, I don't know if you watch the Super Bowl, but Peyton Manning, everyone's wondering he's going to retire. He's going to be 40. You know, Marshawn Lynch, who's younger, who's saying he's retired. So it's like you have those kind of both ends of the spectrum where one person may be going, I don't need to keep injuring myself and putting myself through this. And then one person who's gone and fought back from serious injury to have an even more stellar career than they already had with Peyton Manning. But then he's at this end where he's like, you kind of got to tie it up with a bow and say, hey, you won two championships, two Super Bowls and just kind of walk away and ride off into the sunset, like they say. Yeah, well, and and founders you know, founders of organizations. And this mm-hmm. is whether you, you know, you're a founder who still is a sole entrepreneur, you know, you're, you're a small business owner or you built something massive. Right. It doesn't matter. Like founders always are struggling with their baby and when do they hand it off? Right. And most of the time what happens is founders stay too long mm-hmm. and they end up destroying what they help build. And right. it's so sad to watch that happen when, you know, in the greatest form of your legacy, is is always looking at it from a leadership perspective. How does this how does this grow and mature and continue to thrive after you left? And but, and that's yeah. that's the sign of good leadership. It, mm-hmm. It's you know it's it's one thing when you're there to grow it. It's another thing once you've left. And so you know 
it's it's such a beautiful thing though when you see it done well and you hand it off and you're not you're you're still a fan of it you're still a friend of it you're involved you're cheering for it without that sort of sabotage approach of okay now I'm gone this is the other thing that people struggle with is now I've left but I want everybody to I want to hear this phrase oh if Brad was here man gosh things have gone downhill but if he was still here Man, he would come back, Brad, please. Right. Like you can come back like the yeah. white knight on the horse. Yeah. And that's, that's for a lot of us though, especially those of us who are type A's, we, right. we secretly like want to hear that. Um, right, so, right. you know, it's a hard thing to, to hand things off, but it's such a great sign of your, of your appropriate leadership if you do. So speaking of leadership and, uh, and seeing things through the end, now, obviously we have to talk about your high school rap group, Oreo. Come on, man. Oreo. That's one of my, that's one of my best uh, seasons of assignment that make up my calling, right? Yeah. Oreo. I was cream ale, so I'm cream yeah. ale. Cream ale. C-R-E-M-E. Cream nice. ale. In the middle. Creme. Yeah. Creme. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we knew how to spell it in Oklahoma. We were yeah. hooked on phonics. Yeah. But I had, you know, it was me in the middle and two brothers on the outside. That's I think we would funny. be. I think we'd be double stuff if we were yeah. <laughs> uh, still rapping today, because uh, you know they put on a few pounds since high right. school. Right. But we were we we were uh, we weren't bad. We we were yeah. we weren't great, but we weren't bad. We actually rapped in front of the the state joint session of senators and congressmen in Oklahoma. Wow. Yeah. How about that? And that was when in the nineties, right? Early nineties. That was in the early nineties, and we, I promise you, dude, we we. We were so like making it up as we went. We went right. to Walmart. I'm not kidding you. We went to Walmart in Bristow, Oklahoma, population mm-hmm. 5,000. Mm-hmm. And we got black sweats and we got iron on letters. And we, we put like Oreo down one leg on the sweat <laughs> and then our state like cream L. Uh, and then your and state's sugar, name. Sh- yeah, sugar, I was cream L. Sugar P was uh, one of my other, you know, rappers. <laughs> And we put them like on our leg, like ironed them on. And then we yeah. wore like white t-shirts and we showed up at the state capitol in Oklahoma City and rapped about picking up trash. Wow, look at that. Yeah, because there was I this mean, anti-litter, anti-litter campaign going on in Oklahoma called Don't Lay That Trash Yeah, on Oklahoma. So we got, we got like the, you know, the bring in the lefties. And we got the call to come and <laughs> inspire our congressmen around uh, the anti-litter campaign. And so we wrote, a, we wrote a rap called Clean Up the Streets. That is awesome. And All I mean, true story. Yeah, and you, have to, and you have to also appreciate the time period. I mean, the 90s for rap Absolutely. Was, was all, they were vilified. You know, you had yeah. NWA, you had, you know, all these, uh, all these groups that were, you know, inciting riots, you know, right. about race relations in the 90s that, that rap was seen as like, you know, the devil rock music of the 70s and 80s, you know. So to say you did that in the early 90s is, is definitely impressive. Clean up the streets, man. I I feel like I was Eminem before ever Eminem. He, you know, he was probably like in elementary when I was when yeah. I was in uh, when I was in high school, sophomore year though. I was I was cream L. You know, come to, honestly, come to think of it though, it's as shocking to say. I think he's about your age. Is he is he in his late thirties, early forties? I think he is. Well, let's just say then that I gave him the inspiration. <laughs> exactly. Let's just let's just leave it at that. Like I yeah. gave him the inspiration to really chase his dreams. Nice, nice. When he's when he when he's interviewed, he'll say, "Now, Cremel, you haven't heard of him, but he was my inspiration." <laughs> he was an underground, just straight dirty. <laughs> exactly. L- litter. Yeah, litter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Litter in the sense of the That's word right. "dirty" kind of guy. That's awesome. 
So speaking of kind of chasing your dreams, or I don't know, I should say Eminem, what's been your process for the books you've written over the years? You know, have they been like self-published or the traditional route? Um, if it was traditional, what was that kind of draft shopping process like? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I, I've written two books. The first was The Catalyst Leader, and then H3 Leadership is this most recent one. The Catalyst Leader was really the story of Catalyst. And that was um, two years ago. This one, H3, is much more of a practical sort of game plan, playbook of practical leadership. But the process for me, I, I sort of had a head start because I had worked with John Maxwell for many right. years. And John, as this legendary leadership author, I kind of watched that process for him of working with publishers and literary agents and that whole system, plus a lot of the publishers out there, uh, New York houses, um, uh, you know, all the different independent publishers had over the years, we knew them from catalyst because they would sponsor, they would be sponsors at our events and they would want like their speakers and their authors to show up. So I have a really like unfair advantage because I know that world so well. Right. Uh, and so my process was pretty simple. Like I, I went, I was able to go to, um, really the publisher that I wanted to work with, which was which was Thomas Nelson, which is part of HarperCollins. And um, I did a, you know, a, a, a multi-book deal with them, partly because I like the editors that are there and the marketing people. Um, right. And you know, if anybody's interested in publishing, my, my advice is this. Um, you've never been more able to self-publish than before. Right. But you're also... Um, you're also smart to go the traditional route because if in fact there's really good marketing people that are in place and editors and sort of the public, like printing and all that stuff, like mm -hmm. all the publishers do that well. The marketing person would be somebody you want to look at and go, is this, is this someone who's going to really get me and be innovative and out of the box and think right. about things different? Right. Um, I, th I think that's something that a lot of people, I don't want to, brush with broad strokes and say that they they glance over because of the self-publishing route model that is around today um but like you mentioned that to me is the one thing a lot of people say is is if you're going to go the traditional route please like take the time to find someone who you think is a good fit because if you if you just go with the first people who pay who take your you know take the book and then you yeah. realize after the fact it wasn't a good fit yeah, that would put a bad taste in your mouth, but in reality, it's no one's fault but your own for not really doing the due due diligence and research, um, you know, previously. Yeah, well, and and you know, the reality is, is I could have self published with the with the the Catalyst Tribe as it is with you know such a large right. movement, so many leaders showing up to events, and and actually financially, it would have been uh, it would have been more of a windfall to self publish probably. What I didn't want to deal with, though, was the distraction that potentially would have come with that now, feeling that pressure. So for me, it was more of a partnership. Hey, you guys, like, I'm going to end up probably giving up potential money for Catalyst and for us overall right? because of the fact that I would rather work with you. Uh, but, you know, the, the, re the reality of publishing today is this, that all the barriers are falling. And, you know, Amazon is now basically the the distribution outlet right. uh, the 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 everybody knows the bookstores traditional brick and mortar stores are not what they used to be you you don't you don't necessarily go there to buy books anymore 
Um, yeah, I just go out so, to drink coffee and just read books and put them back. <laughs> right, exactly. And and a lot of those stores are going away. The the niche independent store is still is now like vintage. Yeah. So yeah. you'll actually go to the niche uh, bookstore because it's cool, not right. even because of buying a book. You just go there right. to like hang out with people. Um, so you know if you can build a tribe, this is the key to any any publisher now. Their main ingredient for when they look at an author it's not necessarily about content anymore even it's about do you have a tribe have you built a following do you have a network that you're bringing with you because otherwise you can write the greatest book ever but if you don't have a a following you're probably going to have to self-publish because publishers won't even take you anymore right exactly and i mean you you bring up something that's i i recently saw it was interesting supposedly amazon is getting into the brick and mortar business. I did. I saw that. Yes. And I and I was like, wow. Like ima- imagine what that could be like if you you if you peg them as the people who basically put a lot of these companies out of business. And then now that there's no one left, they're like, you know what? We'll go old school. I'm gonna open up a store. <laughs> well, you know, and they they have both the cash and the credibility. Yeah. And the power to be able to do that. Um, For sure. I'm not sure anybody would go. Like if if I was in the brick and mortar business, what I would be doing is I would be finding, I would be finding the places that people are already hanging out, you know, so a Starbucks would be a great partnership. An Apple store would be a great partnership that I would just come alongside them and say, let's do this together. And in and, and Starbucks, you, you watch like Starbucks is now releasing books. It, really? If, if, yes. I remember, I remember who, the music for years, but never books. Yeah. They, they've now just in the last like six months, nine months, They've started. You, you're seeing like these books that are now basically debuting in a number of Starbucks stores around the country. Um, wow. So I, I bet they, I bet they take on, or at least start to play alongside of Amazon in right. terms of book distribution. Right, for sure. So I know you. Speaking of uh, of talking to great people, you've uh, you've ran your own podcast for a while now, the the Catalyst Podcast, um, yes. where you get to chat with leaders and speakers and authors. Um, tell me a little about what your vision has been for that show. Oh gosh, we started it in 2006. Wow. We were number one on we were number one on iTunes for like eight weeks straight because nobody else was on iTunes. <laughs> we were, you know, we had like 20 listeners and we popped up to number one. I think. Yeah. It, uh, you know, there was just a few of us at that time, and mm-hmm. uh, we started it more because we we were getting to hang out with people we really admired because they were speaking at our events. We thought, how can we get more of this good content out there right. for people and, who couldn't have the chance of, or didn't have the chance to attend. Exactly. So we kept, you know, it's still the same. I'm, I don't host it anymore. I mean, I still do interviews. Um, mm-hmm. I handed off the hosting piece and co-hosting piece when I stepped out of running catalyst, but I still love doing the, the backstage interviews. And it's been such an amazing chance to sit down with, like you said, Jose, like people you admire, mm-hmm. people you, you want to learn from and, to do these long form interviews where you feel like you're having a cup of coffee or you're sitting in a living room. Yeah. It's just, it's been like, I mean, the people that I've gotten to, to talk to, I've just pinched myself. No, and and, go, oh, and that's gosh. the thing. I mean, that was my follow up is like you, you like Malcolm Gladwell, Seth Godin, Francis Chan, Tony Dungy, Andy Stanley, Rick Warren, Marcus Buckingham, Dave Ramsey. I mean, like the, the, that list is insane. Um, you know, and, and I can only imagine the the little kernels and everything else you got to pull from them. Um, let's just let's go with the tough question though. Right? Who who was one of your favorite guests and why? 
Oh. Of all those amazing, and I'm sure, yeah, it's gonna be tough. Wow, <laughs> man, that's so hard. Um, it is. It is. You know, I, I would probably say, um, I, I would probably say Seth Godin. The first time I interviewed Seth, because Seth was like this, this, he was like this superhero to to many of us, right? Around Catalyst. Uh, because we had been reading his stuff for years and we had been asking him to speak forever and he would always turn us down. And yeah. we finally, we finally got him, we figured out what he would say yes to, which was a podcast interview. Nice. And, and so the first, the first time was like, Seth, man, we, it was, it was all I could do to not just basically be the fanboy the whole time, <laughs> you know? And we're yeah. on, we, I think we were on Skype at that point, you know, this was like, again, 2006 or seven. Right. And I was so nervous and but he was so gracious and of course he was dropping gold left and right. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. But I think just because of the timing and and where we were and and after that, actually, um after we interviewed him on the podcast and did the Skype interview, then a few months later, maybe in a it may have been several months, but that's when we finally got him to say yes to come and speak. And so the first time he spoke at Catalyst was 2008 when he launched he actually launched his book Tribes. Oh wow! Uh, he launched that book at Catalyst, which was just like, oh yeah, you know. That's I mean, awesome. we went yeah. we went from not even being able to from getting a no all the time to then he actually agreeing to speak, and we got to la- launch his book together at our event. And so, yeah, that one that one's probably been one of the the more legendary ones for me. No, for sure. I mean, and you said it. I mean, you went from fanboy who gets rejected over and over again to getting a piece to then um you know i'm sure you're a big fan of like tony vaynerchuk or tony look at tony dungy's name gary vaynerchuk gary vaynerchuk who's who's got that very similar kind of um jab 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 right hook mentality in the sense that you know you kept asking and, and you kept giving him you know uh opportunities and not really asking a whole lot you know um, a little bit of an ask, but in the sense of what's an hour of your time over Skype, you know, but again, right. with people like that, you get it. They're very busy. And then, like you said, you, then you turned it and had the opportunity to help him launch his book on a huge platform. Yeah. That maybe otherwise he would not have either, uh, expected or, or been, have, have had access to. Um, so that's pretty neat. That's a pretty cool yeah. trend. A full circle. You went there. I know. And it, you know, what's fun about today. Um, and just the landscape we live in is is that one, we can reach out to anybody. Right, yeah. And there's an assumption, truly, that if you're not approachable as a leader, then you need to, you need to just check yourself before you wreck yourself. Like, <laughs> the, the, if you're thinking that I'm a big deal and nobody can now get in touch with me and I got 17 assistants and, you know, you, you have to go through the gatekeepers. I mean, come on. Like, go right. back to 1995. Like, that, that world is yeah. over. And the beauty of podcasts and of all these digital outlets is that all of those barriers have dropped. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that just, I think that's a great space that we live in where we can actually get access to people that we admire and we can learn from them. And a podcast is such a low barrier to entry of, hey, like, not only can we have a conversation, but I'm actually going to help you get your message out to this tribe that I've built, you know, so right. it's a win-win. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, and that that's a good segue. I mean, with running Catalyst for so long, um, you know, and having your your big tribe, you know, what was your biggest takeaway from that over the years? 
Um, and then a follow-up would be, you know, what are, what are some notable leaders you've molded that maybe you're still keeping your eye on? Well, you know, the, the, a couple of things for me. Personally, I always wanted to make sure that Catalyst was not about me. And sure. this, was, this, was a, um, this was a goal. And it, it was intentional from the very beginning. Part of that was the generation we were trying to connect to. And the generation we were trying to connect to was a bunch of us saying, if it's about us, like if we're trying to build our own kingdom and our own name and our thing, then none of our friends are going to want to be a part of it. So we had to right. be, keep telling the story that was bigger than all of us. And the, the, the theme that I kept coming back to for me personally as the leader of this movement was, Brad, build a platform that other people can stand on. Like put, put, put energy into creating the stage, the environment. The, the, you know, the big gathering, thousands of leaders together, but make sure that your goal is to stand on the side and watch others be cheered for. Right. And, and that is, if, if you as a leader, anybody listening, like if that is your goal, if you're making other people the hero, you will succeed. Yeah, like for it, sure. it, it, Every time, like, and build a platform, build a platform for others, like make it about others around you, help them be the hero of the story. Um, that was the first one. The second one was then once we started galvanizing enough, enough movement, like we, we became the place that speakers would want to release books. And we became the place that, you know, like people wanted to speak and be on stage and they wanted to have their thing connected to ours. We, we moved from the idea and very clearly it became to us that we had to be willing to be all about collaboration. Right. And Man, unity for us was such a huge deal. Um, we wanted to be the place that people came together and were excited and actually like cheering each other on. And, you know, it wasn't about division, it was about unity. And, you know, so much of our audience, even as faith leaders, like so many times there was always this, this sense of, well, you, you're going to, we're going to, we're going to try to pigeonhole you into like, who you're against or who you're, you know, who, who you're, who you're like paired up against as your enemy. And when we just always fought for, no, we're about unity. Like yeah. we're going to spread the net. We're going to cast the net as wide as possible and make this a place where lots of different leaders can come together. And I, I just think that for me, that I, I'm so proud of that in that we kept our, our heartbeat of, man, let's be unified. And, we, you know, we had lots of justice issues that we tried to hit on. We, you know, we tried to find friends and partners like a Scott Harrison from Charity Water or when Blake McCoskey launched Tom's, um, you know, when, when the um, human and the anti-trafficking issue became a really big deal sort of in culture. Right. Mm -hmm. we, we made that one of our big pushes. And because we just wanted to use this thing that we have been given um, to not just like you know, bring a bunch of people together, but let's actually make a difference. Let's, let's try to have a dent in yeah. some parts of our culture that need to be fixed that are broken. And, and you said it, I mean, it, it's, it's true that with how cynic we've become as a society, it, it is tough, you know? And, and when you, when you put out something that is warm and fuzzy, right. for lack of a better word, um, people are always very hesitant in the beginning and very reluctant to accept it. And I, and it, it, it makes sense. But, but the thing is, that's where the patience 
and the and the you know uh, perseverance comes in because if you keep like you said if you keep that ethos you know strong and you keep going in the same steps of this is what we're all about this is what we're all about and just and and kind of in a way putting up blinders to what a lot of people try and pigeonhole you or peg you as um, then after a while yeah you guys start you start having the success because then people go oh. Oh, okay. These guys really are doing something great and they really don't have yeah. like a hidden agenda and, and they really are just, just really all about connecting and, and, and bringing people together and all that. And and it is that, that, that's what sucks. It's like, that's a hurdle you have to go through, you know? Right. Uh, and, and for essentially something that people should just accept and not accept, but in a sense of like, like, if pe- if you told people I'm just going after money, unfortunately nowadays it's something people generally can just off the bat. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, they, they understand it, they get it. Cool. Maybe you'll have an easier time just being successful and 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 making a lot of money in business. But then when you just go, well, I'd rather concentrate on an overall idea and not just the bottom line. Then people start going, wait, 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 wait. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, hey, like, you're exactly right. And the more you know, we learned this too. The, the bigger we got, the, the right. more influence we, we created and we started to galvanize, the more authentic we had to be. Because exactly. everybody was showing up with, with a, an assumption that we were going to be mistrust. We, were, we should be mistrusted because we were becoming right. big. And man, the, the bigger we got, the smaller we had to act. The, the more vulnerable we had to be, the more transparent, the more honest. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. other thing was is, we try to sort of change the game in the leadership conference world of actually making it fun. And we we always believe that experience was the, the, the key leading uh, differentiator for us. So we're breaking world records. You know, we're having like uh, people come in that, you know, we shot a guy out of a cannon one year <laughs> inside of an arena. That's and it, awesome. was first, it was the first time he'd ever done this inside he always had done it outside. You know, he would yeah. have a big shoot and over the, you know, into the net. And we like shot him over these, the speaker rigging. Oh and <laughs> it was crazy. Like we thought yeah. this guy is probably yeah. going to die. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's a few, he's a few fries short of a happy meal in terms of just his <laughs> overall like mindset. But yeah, stuff like that, we, we started to try to create this sense that, man, the unexpected is going to happen at a catalyst event. Right. And, Content, you know, that this is this is this is true for all of us, especially as creatives. Content now is a commodity. Oh yeah. I can get it anywhere. I can listen to podcasts for free. I can download the latest talk from whoever. So if I'm coming to a conference now, I'm expecting more than just content. I'm expecting mm-hmm. connection. I'm expecting experience. I'm expecting like give me something else here that's gonna make me come back. And right. so we had to do that just to keep up with the the nature of of conferences because I can I can hear that person now I can listen to Seth Godin online I can listen to Seth Godin startup school for right. free on iTunes you know now now tell me was was that something that um was is it like an one big annual event or or was it like kind of like the TED and TEDx thing where you had like one big event but you had like a little smaller kind of network of of satellite events you did as well. Yeah, we had one event in Atlanta that was for the first eight years of our existence was the flagship annual gathering. That right. was the only that was the only offering. And then we started doing a West Coast event 
about eight years into it and then started doing other regional like one day events. And so as it grew, we started to expand uh, partly because our brand was becoming more known, but also because people would say, hey, I don't want to travel to Atlanta. I live right. in Denver, man, bring something else out here to me so I can save on money. And, uh, you know, so that was part of the our, part of the strategy. And, you know, looking back, I, I think I think the in and out burger uh, you know, the, the idea of in and out is that I can only get it where palm trees are grown, right? If I'm in California, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. if I'm in Las Vegas, if I'm in Phoenix, man, when I go to Cal, when I go there, I want in and out. Right. Uh, and that was always a tension for us was, should we make this an annual thing that you can only get once a year in Atlanta? Right. Bring up, or bring up, and bring up that the, market. Right. Yeah. Well, should we expand the brand and allow people to, to consume it or participate in it? And, there was always that tension of, will we dilute the experience, you know, if right, we right. span too fast. And a lot of brands, I don't know if we did it right, but we know this, we waited longer than everybody was expecting right? because we wanted to make sure we didn't dilute it. Mm-hmm. And like you said, if you, if you model it after the expectation and being transparent and say, listen, these are going to be like, these little events are going to be something that while very strong within the same brand and identity of the big catalyst events. It's almost like you have to also then make peace with the fact that it's just going to be different. You know, like, like you have to go with the understanding of this is going to be a great experience, but if you want the full on, you know, the full Monty, the full shebang, the the whole, the whole thing, you got to come to Atlanta. And, and, and I think the good thing is like you, if you, if you, we're very, like you said, very transparent about that idea. Then what you have is, okay, let me get my feet wet locally or somewhere close by. If I like it and I enjoy it, then I can go, you know what? I'm going to save up and next year I'm going to make that trip to Atlanta. Yeah. You know, so at least you have, you have that, that kind of thing that can help get people in the door in a sense. Yeah. Um, that's pretty neat. So, so what you're, you're telling me a little bit about, you know, catalyst and and things risks you've taken as a group, which is great to have that that kind of back and forth to kind of balance everything out. But tell me, what's the biggest risk you've taken with your business? With like now, as you've moved on since catalyst, and you have um, you know, the strategic consulting kind of a, a model that you have now. Well, I mean, the, a big risk was stepping away from catalyst uh, for me because it was it was you know something I had built and. It was something that I could have stayed. I was at the pinnacle. I mean, I was Barry Sanders in many ways. Like I, I felt like I had a lot of good years left. And um, so that was a risk. Although it's been validated now, walking away, it was the right thing to do. But that was a big risk. And, you know, I think now, like, the, the biggest risk for me is um, making sure that I don't just, like, push myself into things that I know that I that I'm I'm saying yes because there's an urgency to it compared to right. waiting on the right thing slash making sure that I'm working alongside people and advising organizations that I really believe in that also I want to work with and I, I think in later in life like I'm not old but I'm getting older I'm realizing that man like vocationally I want to work on things with people I enjoy being around. Right. I, I don't want to work with jerks. I don't want to work with right. people that drive me crazy. I don't want to work with people that are just annoying. And, you know, the risk 
of saying no to things that seem like there's major upside yeah, yeah. compared to saying yes to things that, that may not have any upside, but you look at, look at it and go, well, that give me a better like quality of life. Right. That, that's a hard thing. And, um, entrepreneurs struggle with that, you know, like the, the dollar bill and the, the urgency of cash flow and the Friday payroll is such a, such a strong pull towards all of us. And, you know, again, my advice and just my learning so far in this last two and a half, three years has been, Brad, like stay true and, mm-hmm. um, you know, don't say yes to everything, but do say yes to the things that you're going to find life with and you, and the people you want to do life with. Right. And that's just been a huge learning. Um, and again, like the reality of today is that never before have you been able to sort of choose your own adventure as much as mm-hmm. we can. Like it's your story, right. Jose, like you're yeah. doing what you love to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's going to be opportunities probably at some point that people are going to come along and say, Hey, like I could take you to the next level and I want to buy your show. And, right. and that risk is going to be, well, do I say yes to sort of the first suitor? Right. Do I say yes to the, to the folks showing me the most 20s? You know, or, right. or do, I, you know, do I hold out for people I, I just really want to like, be partnered up with? Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it's, that's something that um, is, is, is important. You know, like I, I mentioned a lot about my, my previous job and how this all started, quite honestly. It was like I got laid off. And when I think about my previous job, uh, it sucks to say that it was, I'm not saying it was fun the entire time. Any, any job is stressful, but when, when a company went public, there was a noticeable shift. And like you said, it's, it's expected because you just mentioned it. When all you start thinking about is the bottom line or when all you start talking about is your evaluation and the, and the people and the shareholders, the rules change. And the dynamic changes, and suddenly you don't have that same kind of startup feel. It's more, oh, okay, it's just like every other cookie cutter, you know, cutthroat kind of business out there. And it, it wasn't even two quarters before there were some some you know decent layoffs, and and that sucks. But at the same time, it's just that's life. And then you figure out, okay, I learn from that, and then say, like you mentioned, that that you have to take those risks every time when you're your own your own freelancer where you don't want to work with every single person for the sake of rent but you sit there and go that's a that's that's a tough thing to say no to because rent's rent you know money money matters but at the same time you get older and you get to this place where you go you know what i've done the take whatever i can for money and those kind of people or clients are obviously nothing like the people when you say, okay, I'm going to wait and they're going to pay my full rate. They're going to see the value in what I do. They're going to see, um, you know, they're going to really get what I'm trying to do. And even if they pay me, I mean, sometimes it's opposite. Sometimes those people will pay you more than the other kind of clients you have to push away, but you have to wait a lot longer sometimes for them to come around, which is the risk. Yeah. Um, and that's where a lot of people, I think, falter and it's and it's human it's understandable you know so speaking of that what would you say is like your your biggest fear creatively oh gosh uh you know i that one's an easy one it's that that i know and um 
I, my, my fear is that everybody realizes that I'm not at the end of the day, that creative. Uh, so the imposter, setting, the imposter syndrome. Exactly. Like sitting in the room and everybody goes, wait, you've been, you've been faking this for quite a while. And those black, those black rim glasses fool no one. <laughs> exactly. Right. And here was, here was always the premise for me over the years of even catalyst. Cause we, we prided ourselves on, on being creative and innovative and thinking outside the box and, and always trying to one up ourselves. And, but here's what I learned is that creativity is a muscle that you have to continue to work out and that the intentional side is so important with creativity. If right. you're not intentional, like, so for me, the, the way I could best articulate and, and show value in creative environments was that my intentionality was, man, I've got a list of 20 ideas and I know that I've gathered all these ideas now, like, let's work through them. So I don't have to be the idea guy. I just have to be willing to be intentional about following up on all the things and writing stuff down. And so the process for me of creativity was actually the reason I could be creative. Yeah. But you put, me, you put me in a room and brainstorm. I mean, I'm okay. I can hold my own. Right. But I'm not, the, I'm, not that, I'm not the one who comes up with all those things. But you give me the chance to take somebody on a process and I can start to show value. And so I had to realize that that's actually just as important, if not more, than the, you know, the really like creative, off the chart creative person who sits in a brainstorming meeting and you're just like, dude, where are you coming up with all this stuff? Because that's not me, but I'm still yeah. just as important to the process because I actually bring a process to the table. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned something that, that, quite honestly, was something that I struggled with at my previous job because I met, I, I was a product project manager. So you, you said it right there. I'm not the one writing the code. I'm not the one designing the, the things. I'm not even the one selling the ad units, but I'm the one who's carrying it along through the process. I'm the one who's also, uh, in some regards, recognizing the right talent that will fit and and all that is very important because you know another sports reference if you have a, a team full of all-stars everyone thinking about themselves right you're not going to be any good because you're not going to come together so you always have to have that person who helps herd and cowboy <laughs> yeah that's exactly <laughs> every, right every, man everything along um because without that they're just kind of roaming around and and it's and it's yeah like you said it's that's that's more important than I think you, you said it. That's more important than I think people give credit. And um, I, had to, I, had to, I had to really um, find my place, even in, in running a creative meeting or, or being the one who was um, in charge of a brainstorming session or whatever. I had to find my place in making sure that, one, I wasn't the filter for good ideas. Right. Uh, and two, that I, di that I didn't actually push the process so quick that it, we would miss out on things. And cause my tendency was, all right, guys, let's, let's get, let's get 10 ideas on the, on the board and let's work through them. And a lot of the more creative people around me would, would they were frustrated by that because they, they, they want to have this environment of, man, let's just throw it up on the wall and see what sticks. And right. we got to, you know, and, and so I had to be willing to be part of the process and make sure the process was, actually happening while also 
letting ideas stew, mm-hmm. but making sure that we continue to push the ball forward. And, yeah. you know, so as a type A, I'm, I'm much more going to push to, hey, let's make a decision and move on. And a lot of people in the room would just say, Brad, like, we got to let it sit for a minute. You right. Because yeah. the bad ideas typically would actually turn into, or average ideas many times turn into the best ones because people would build on top of them. Right. Or you, like you said, you just got to give it time. You know, right. like sometimes exactly. people will come to me with something and I go, that's, that's dog shit. And then, and then I sit there and right. think about it and go, wait, wait that's actually pretty good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I, and that's another thing that I think for a lot of people, just to say managers, you know, leaders have, uh, or, or I should not, uh, I shouldn't say struggle with, but, but a realization they come to is, you know, I always knew I was never like a, a middle man. Well, at one job, one or two jobs, I had a middle management kind of role and, I always knew if I got to upper level management that my thing would be I was never the the um, insecure type. I'd want to hire someone who is smarter and better and faster and everything than me because I knew that they would only reflect on me as a, okay, I right. picked a great person. But also, why not if if they if they if they then hit the ground running, have great ideas, shepherd things along, and and blow into the stratosphere and pass me, okay, I still would be seen, hopefully, as someone that gave them that opportunity. So I wouldn't look at it as, oh, well, they got the promotion I should have gotten. Well, no, guess what? They busted their ass and they got it, but they're not, they wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for me anyway. So it's like kind of realizing all those little thoughts. And like you said, getting to a point where you, you sit there and go, I hired you for a reason. I need to let you do your thing. So like you said, it's kind of like giving them the the constructs and then kind of stepping away in a sense um, to let them do what they're going to do because it may surprise you, you know? And and that's, like you said, as a type A, that's very hard. Um, I don't know if you're ever a Mad Men fan, um, but that was to me what I saw a lot with Don Draper's, you know, or that character was that it was the same thing. He had, he could always walk into a room and give out a great idea, but it was the part where he had to put his people and team in place and walk away sometimes and then yeah. come back and go, okay, what do we got? Well, and you're right. I mean, it, it's that you can do that or you've been able to do that is, is a sign of not only good leadership, but actually like maturity as a creative. Uh, because the, again, the, the, the people who are actually, fueling creatives are the ones who sit in the places of power and are able to like let people under them or on their team or peers to them be better than they are. I mean, that, that's the beauty of a great producer in Hollywood as just an example, or, or right. even a director is that you, you surround yourself as a producer, especially with such people who are so good at what they do that they outdistance you. But that's, like as a producer, that's what you're asked to do. Yeah, it's go find people who are so much better at you in all these areas, and you're the you're the you know you're the um, you're the magician, you're the Oz behind the curtain, right? And you allow everybody else to get the get the credit and the kudos, but you know that's that's just as important in the creative process. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like you said, it, it's it's uh, it's putting the right people in place, but also nurturing it along. You know, because a lot of times, like you, like you already know, um, you get a lot of different personalities in the same room. They don't always mix well, so you always have to be that right. guiding, that guiding force the whole time. All right, so we're gonna go pretty deep here. All right, 
Name your most meaningful moment in your career thus far. Most meaningful moment. Mm-hmm. Wow. Man, that one's tough. Um, yeah, I'm sure and I hadn't a, thought about lot. this. There's there was no lot. preparation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, that is a tough one. You know, I, I think um, the, a moment of great memory was the first time I was at the White House. And I'm not humble bragging. I mean, it, this is not to toot my own horn, but I got invited because of Catalyst and our more, platform. More, let's be real, more because of Oreo, but go on. Well, no question. <laughs> they had heard the underground uh, rapping community that now had infiltrated the White House knew about me. <laughs> I, I remember, I remember uh, setting, uh, walking into the, to the East Room, and I mean, I'm the kid from Oklahoma, right? I mean, mm-hmm. 5,000 people never thought I would ever get a chance to be in the White House and not just in the White House, but actually like to be in a, in an environment where I'm invited. Yeah. It wasn't like you just took a tour. Exactly. I'm invited there on behalf of the president and his team because of some leadership and influence that I might have. And it was just a humbling moment. And man, I was, I was just like a kid in a candy store and it, it was one of those things that I, I remember just thinking this, Jose. I thought, Brad, never lose this moment mm-hmm. and never get too big that you don't appreciate what this is. Right. Never be that guy who thinks, oh, I should have been invited. Right? I mean, just right. never get there. And, and so that, for me, was one of those memory moments that will always stand out. The first time I went was just like, oh, my gosh, this is it. Like, this is the hallway the president walks down when he does – his, his speeches. And this is the East oh, room. Nice. Where so many legendary voices have, you know, have stepped into this place and sang and have spoken. And it's just, it was, uh, I mean, I was almost to tears like in that moment, yeah. just because such the appreciation for it. For sure. What year was that? That was in 2000 and, uh, it would have been 2009 mm-hmm. or actually 2010. Uh, cause it was the first, it was the first uh, spring of, of President Obama's presidency. Second term. Right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Nice. I mean, yeah, you, you said it. I mean, that, that's something that for a lot of people, you, you can't say. That's a feather in anyone's cap. Um, right. And I think to me, not going huge into politics, but I think the one thing, the one way I always looked at it was I don't care what my political stances whether the president is someone i like or whether the there i voted for him or not to me like you have to respect the title and oh you have absolutely to respect, yeah you have to respect the fact that like him or not that's the leader of our nation and to say that you're in the same room as him that's awesome you know it really is and that's yeah. that's pretty cool um and and yeah so that's that's definitely to me that's an understandable pick <laughs> now hey my my runner up my yeah. runner up just to go back to cream l Sure. <laughs> uh, was, was, uh, this is, you know, this is like the other side is, uh, there's a friend named Kevin Olusola mm-hmm. and most people won't know his name, but he's in the band Pentatonics, mm-hmm. which is a acapella group that's kind of risen up and well-known. They won the sing off on NBC. Oh, wow. Uh, they're, they're kind of the best in the world acapella group. And Kevin is the beatboxer in the group. So oh, he wow. is like the, the best beatboxer arguably in the world. Wow, that's and awesome. So at a Catalyst event three years ago, 
um, we had Kevin come. He actually plays, he plays like all these instruments and he did this little performance, which was incredible. But because I was in charge, I said, all right, buddy, this is our moment. You're coming out with me on stage and you and I are going to beatbox and rap together. <laughs> so in front of 13,000 people, I got to rap and beatbox with arguably the greatest beatboxer of our day. That is awesome. So that's my other memory moment. Yeah, yeah. no, there for you sure. Go. And then at the end, you're like, cream out, out, boom. Cream out, drop the mic. Woo! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're like, shout out to Oreo. Right, Oreo's back. <laughs> that's awesome. So the, I always, I always, uh, follow up that question with another one that I wonder if I'm going to reword it ever, but I think the reason why I keep this word in there is, is, is for good reason. So the next thing is, okay, what would be your biggest regret in your career? Now, a lot of people lately and understandably so first, their first response is, well, I, I, I reject that word. Right. And I get it because they say, um, if like we talked about earlier, if you look at it like every dot is still pushing you on this journey, there's really never any regret. Every everything that happens is a learning experience that then you parlay into what takes you to the next level. Um, and and I, I get that, you know. But I think a lot of times it's like maybe maybe I could say like, what's the biggest failure you've ever you know experienced that you learned from in your career? Yeah. Well, there's lots of failures. Uh, you know, failures are the, are the mile markers on the way to greatness. I think right. if you don't have any of those on your, on your path and on your interstate, then it's, I'm really questioning whether you're on the right road or even if you're driving, you know I mean? Cause the success stories only being the part of your story that is public, it's, it's not believable. Um, right. so for me, lots of failures, you know, I think I wanted, I sh- it, regret wise, I wish I would have been a business major in college. Mm-hmm. Um, history was great, but I really wish I would have known now. Or if I'd have known now what I know, if I'd have known now what I know now, I would have been right. a business, business major. Um, you know, from a career perspective, um, you know, I do wish I would have pursued politics a little bit more. And I may still at some point, who knows? But yeah. that, that was a, a kind of a dream. You're pretty big in the, in the Atlanta market. Well, could, could yeah. be something there. <laughs> I, yeah, I, the thing is now, like politics is such a dividing, yeah, world that it's tough to like get anything done. Yeah, um, for sure. Because we've just moved to these polarized extremes in our country. But you know, that's that's kind of a regret, I would say. Um, a, a, another failure slash regret of, during the Callis years was, you know, we had a year two thousand four, and I remember it because it's so vivid in my mind of don't do that is, you know, we kind of sold out to a sponsor and we, we had like this organization that showed up with the big check and they said, Hey, we want to play at a big level. We're willing to write a check, but we want, we want to sort of have control. And we, we said, we said yes to some things that really weren't us. Uh, some speakers that we had that were just people in the audience were like, what in the world? Yeah. What a good fit. Yeah. And, you know, several of, several of our speakers who had, who had been with us, who were part of our fabric of Catalyst said, Hey man, if you're, if you guys are going this way in this direction, we don't want to be part Ooh. of it. And right. a lot of those long, you know, the, the, the group leaders and the VIPs and people who were believing in us were questioning us. And so we had to sort of eat some crow and say, Hey guys, we messed up. Like we, right. we're going to be honest. Um, but it was a big failure for us was the dollar signs and just that sense of, 
you're on your, you know, you're on the, on the, um, on the journey and trying to establish yourself. And all of a sudden you make a decision that doesn't make sense to the soul and heart of who you are. And, and so that was a big one. You know, we kind of agreed at that point as a organization and as a team, Hey, you know what, regardless of who shows up and what, if, even if they have a big check, let's, let's not lose sight of our, of, of who we are. Um, Yeah. And you know what, to, to, to some extent it's, it's understandable because how many times you see people who are well-intentioned, good-natured, have a great idea, but just the funding isn't there after a while and it, right. it dies out. And, and, and then you say, well, shit, like, oh, well, we, we stuck to our morals and we stuck to our ethos of what we were. It's like, yeah, but at the same time, you have to make that concession to a point, like you said, where if something can keep you afloat, you, you, you kind of, like you said, you take it with a grain of salt and you figure it out, you know, and, and maybe at one point in 2004, it was early on enough where maybe you were scared enough that you're like, this could really leverage what we're doing and this could push us to the next level. And then you found out it just wasn't a good fit. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And, and that's the, you know, there's sometimes there's things that should just die. Um, yeah. You know, and, and we, we end up like finding people who will fund it when in fact it should have just gone away. Um, and I mean, I, that wasn't our case, but I just, I know that the, the good intentions of that organization were not misplaced at all. I mean, they, they just wanted to, they, they were coming alongside, alongside saying, Hey, we have some of our own agenda items. And it is the, it, it, we, people have to make sure, especially when it, it, in the day of branding and tribe building and, and authenticity that man, you are just so dialed in to, to self-awareness as right. a leader and as an organization. And you just, you know so well who you are um, that you're not willing to, to sell anything short of that. Right. And I mean, like you said, especially nowadays where, you know, we, we've talked to, um, I, we had a comedian on uh, by the name of Mickey Coachella. And we, we started talking about people like, you know, Eddie Murphy and why he was not doing stand-up anymore. And, and he's, he very succinctly said, well, because of social media. Because he says, like, you know, if I said some of the things that I said in the 80s now, oh, my God, overnight, I'd be, you know, I crucified on Twitter right. and, and I'd lose, like, overnight, I could lose everything I built over the past, you know, 30 years. And and it was kind of like, it, for a long time, I was like, wow, now I get it. You know, like, if you have kids and you're at this nice, comfortable place and, and some people might say you sold out and you're making these movies that you want your kids to go be able to see. And, but at the same time, recognizing the shift in culture, recognizing where society is at now, like you said, that transparency isn't a buzzword, it's a necessity. Right. Um, because you get called out quick, you know, so should look at politics. People say, oh, well, I love this new stance I have. And then people go, check out this video online from five years ago where you said the complete opposite. And right. you put those two together and you put a video online and people are like, Oh my God, you're a flim flammer. You're, you're, you know, and, and it's true that that could nowadays it's, yeah, it's tough. You know, you have to, like you said, you have to be aware of, of what you're putting out there and, and realizing that nothing on the internet ever goes away. Well, and that's, I mean, that is the reality today of leadership is one, you need to be authentic because people expect it. Right. Two, you need to be authentic because if, if you're not, you will get found out. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
we just we have so many outlets now where people are going to discover if you're trying to hide something right you know so <laughs> you might as well come clean early on uh yeah before the the discovery period happens and and this is just the old days of putting it all behind the curtain and you know under the table and not letting any of those secrets out that, that's hard anymore yeah it's, yeah it's actually not not even possible anymore no yeah you said it i mean like things like you know what enron and then black box of companies it right it's just yeah we become more aware and and we become more um unfortunately like we said more cynic in a sense of saying hey we're going to be a little a little hard on uh on 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 people and, and really kind of challenge them a little bit so listen brad we we've been chatting for quite a bit um we're just going to wrap it up here i only have two more questions left yep. but i just want to say you know thank you for taking the time you know we've we've i've had an amazing time chatting with you and, and getting to know catalyst a bit more and everything you've been doing um, so where can people check out your stuff and learn more about what you do? Yeah. All of my outlets are just my name. So at Brad Lominick. Nice. Yeah, I know it's, it's having the name Brad Lominick. Uh, there's nobody else in the world. I don't think with my name. So that makes it easy. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was able to, you know, quickly get those on all the, uh, outlets. So yeah, Instagram, Twitter, uh, website is just my name, Brad uh, Facebook, any outlet. I'm pretty much by that name. Okay. Awesome. And last but not least, who's someone that you would like to hear us talk to on the show? Oh gosh, man. I got a list a Great. mile long. Hey, hey, we'll, have you guys we'll, had we'll Jeremy Coward on? Have you had Jeremy? Yes. Jeremy okay. was one of the first people we had on when we launched at, at, uh, at Photo Plus. There you and go. that was amazing. Don't get me wrong. It was like you said, it was hard not to fanboy oh, on that one. But the, but the unfortunate thing was when we were doing it at Photo Plus, we were talking with like three or four people at a time. So it was really hard for me to really get in-depth with any one person. So um, the first repeat uh, guest we've had on was a photographer by the name of Renee Robin, yep. who was one of the people we talked to at Photo Plus. And I've been putting out the, the invitation to everyone else saying, listen, let's do it right Let's get you guys your own your own episode. We talk for an hour. We do the questions and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm hoping that we one day we can get Jeremy back on because he he was awesome. Oh yeah, get Jeremy back. He's he's amazing. Uh, another guy you should have on is John Acuff. Uh, John is an author. He's a speaker. Wrote a book. His most recent book is called Do Over. Uh, but he's really funny. He's entertaining. Uh, but he's got great stuff, great content, great insight. Nice. So he'd he'd be another one I'd I'd highly recommend. Awesome. All right. And All I can right. give you more more. I got a list of mile long of. Uh, oh please, no. Honestly, when we're done, and, yeah. When we're done, you can yeah. email me whoever else, and we we will we will go after him. Love it, man. All right. Well, listen, Brad, thank you again for taking the time out today uh, to sit with us and and tell us more about the H3 Leadership uh, Catalyst and, and what you're trying to do with, uh, with Blink. So uh, thank you. Thanks, Jose. All right. Take care.